Well, it's good to be back. Um, I missed quite a few Sundays in a row, and I really missed being here with you guys. We had kind of a succession of events um, out a couple weeks because of COVID, and then a funeral in Texas, and then traveling some of the New England states. So I'm really glad to be back with all of you, and glad for our visitors that are here with us today, too. Um, I hope that you'll be blessed in your time here. So for a while, I've been doing, I've been wanting to do a kind of a deep dive into one of my favorite books in the New Testament, the book of first Peter. And so today we're going to look at an introduction and what I think is foundational to understanding the rest of this book. Um, this was a letter that Peter addressed uh, to the dispersion, the dispersed Christians over a large area of what is modern Turkey. Um, in chapter 5, Peter cryptically refers to Babylon, where he was, likely referring to Rome, where he spent a lot of the last decade of his life. Uh, we're probably, most of us are probably familiar with the persecution of Nero against the church. Um, the persecution he launched after the great fire of Rome that broke out in A.D. 64. Uh, there was a fire that raged for like nine days and destroyed uh, around two-thirds of the city. A lot of people suspected that Nero had himself lit the fires so that he could build back better. And so to clear himself of these accusations... Um, he used the Christian community as a scapegoat and accused them of lighting the fires. So you can guess what, what the result of that was. For the next few years, he ruthlessly persecuted the Christian church, famously burning them around the city. He would uh, cover them in oil, put them up on poles, light them like torches to light Rome at night. Now, it's thought that Peter wrote this letter just a few years, maybe just one or two years before this persecution against the church broke out. Um, And it's interesting because this letter doesn't go into much description of specific sufferings, but it talks a lot about suffering. And there's a lot of encouragement in it for believers to endure suffering. And it's possible that Peter... Um, saw the suffering that was just around the corner, the persecution that was to come. Or maybe the, the, the Holy Spirit was just preparing him and using him to prepare um, other believers for the persecution that was going to come in the coming years. And as though he had a premonition of what was uh, just about to happen, he wrote in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Just a few years after he wrote this, the fiery trial literally came on the church at Rome, and Peter was executed at the hands of a tyrannical regime. But his faith did not fail. Because he had set his eyes on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that we want to look at here. Not so much at suffering specifically, but at what Peter was focused on. And in the initial part of this letter, in the opening of the the letter, how he sets a foundation for believers. A 
a foundation of hope, a foundation of setting our eyes on the salvation that we have been given and what that means to us and how that translates to hope and tenacity and endurance in the face of suffering. The opening paragraphs of this letter are really dense, and by dense I mean packed, kind of like a cup of coffee. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get my coffee in the morning. It's like so full that... And it's just surface tension holding the top part on. So that's kind of how this opening part is. That there's a lot there, and you have to look at it carefully and closely. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible, follow along. And we're going to look at the first 13 verses or so and see what's in here for us. I'm just going to start with reading the first 13 verses. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just pray again. God, we just ask that you would take this word and and put it deep within our hearts and give us the foundation that we need for the times that are to come so that when we meet trials and suffering and the testing of our faith, that we will not be shaken because we see the value of the salvation that you have invested in us and we see the hope that is not yet revealed, that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. Just speak to us by your Spirit and make this word alive inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen.
So he starts out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and yes, this is the one and only Peter. There's no other Peter that we read of in the New Testament, the one that we've come to love because a lot of us identify with him in his um, struggles and bumblings, um, his experiences as a young disciple of Jesus. Historically, there has been little doubt as to the authenticity of the authorship of, of this letter, Um, More recently, however, there's skeptics that have questioned whether maybe somebody else wrote it because they say it's too scholarly and too theologically profound for Peter to have been able to write it. It sounds a bit like the people in in the book of Acts when they heard Peter and John talk, right? They said, how is this possible? These unlearned and ignorant men talking with this kind of boldness. And it says they perceived that they had been with Jesus They recognize the effects of being with Jesus and the the effects of the Holy Spirit working through Peter and John. And we we can see the effects of it still in this letter and benefit from those effects. So the impact of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life turning from a fearful um, kind of uh, loose cannon to what, what Paul called a pillar in the church. He seemed to be a pillar in the church, an unstoppable witness for Christ. So this was Peter, an apostle of Christ. Maybe Jesus saw some of the same potential in him before it was um, before it was still being lived out when he when he told Peter, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. You're going to be someone who strengthens the church. And I look at at the book of First Peter and Second Peter, and that's what I see. I see an apostle who is who was good at giving an encouraging, strengthening word. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So elect exiles of the dispersion. From the outset, it seems like Peter wants to kind of jar his audience with this powerful recognition of their identity. Yes, you are exiles, but you're not just Exiles, And some of them were actually exiles in the physical sense in that they had had to leave their hometowns um, because of persecution and they had uh, migrated further north um, to flee persecution. Some of them were probably native to the area where they were now living. But Peter wanted them to know whether or not you're actually from this area geographically, you are in exile and you're not only in exile, you are an elect exile selected by God. To be a stranger in the community where you live, displaced, living among people where they ultimately did not belong. And he uses the term exile several times in this letter. Um, Further down in in verse 17, we see where he says, conduct yourselves with fear in the time of your exile. In chapter 2, he urges them as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against their souls. He wants them to be profoundly aware that they belong to a different place, a better country, a different system, a different value system, a different political system than the one that surrounds them. And although the majority of his audience was likely Gentile background, he wants them to identify with the Israel of God, the chosen dispersion, a word that was often used to speak of Israel because they were often displaced, dispersed, scattered from their country because of persecution from their enemies. And now they had taken on, as followers of Christ, they had taken on this same identity. They were part of the dispersion. They were exiles, and not only exiles, but elect exiles. 
this is what God has selected you for. It's okay that you don't belong. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. It's like he's saying, guys, I want you to see the big picture of what you have been called to. This is what God, this is God's doing. This is salvation that you've been called to. This exile that you're living in is God's doing. It's a full concerted effort from God the Father, and he brings the Trinity in here so beautifully, from God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. You've been set apart through God's foreknowledge, and he's consecrated you through the blood of Jesus. And the, those of Jewish background would have been very familiar with this because um, the, the high priest always had to go into the temple and had to... Um, let me just... Uh, Silence this notification because it's very persistent. They were very familiar with the process of the high priest going into the temple and consecrating the things that were there. The things had value not just because of their intrinsic value, but because they had been consecrated by blood. And just in the same way, God has consecrated us with the blood of Christ. He has set us apart as a unique, holy people. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This isn't just a neat way to open a letter, but I think he's saying in part that grace and peace will be multiplied to you through what you are about to hear right now. As we begin to to comprehend the profound truth that Peter is presenting here, be assured it will result in grace and peace, regardless of our circumstances. And right here at the outset, I love this. At the outset, Peter practically bursts with what I think is about the best part of the entire letter. Rather than presenting an abstract theological concept he bursts into this little spontaneous worship session. I'm just going to read it. Verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who... By God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It was as though he just couldn't help himself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's something that really grabbed my attention here. You know, for three years, Peter walked closely with Jesus. He saw him do all kinds of miracles. He saw the most amazing thing. Yet now, when he's writing encouragement to churches under fire, he's not drawing from anecdotes of his experiences with Jesus in the flesh. He has come to see, through revelation of the Holy Spirit, the grandeur of the divine scheme, plan of salvation that he's a part of. 
It's like, it's like he just went up onto this high mountain and he looks down and he sees the bird's eye view of what God is doing. And that is far more impressive to him than the things he witnessed with his physical eyes. This salvation that he had experienced, is experiencing, will experience, that will be revealed was so much more than just a bunch of neat miracles. It was a spiritual reality that massively eclipsed the things that he had seen physically. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We could stop right there and it would be more than we could handle. Caused. He caused us to be born again. Like new life, new birth. To a living hope. Resurrection from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus, he brings us into resurrection from our deadness into his life. But he keeps going. This is what you've been born again to. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. How many of you guys woke up this morning and said, man, I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading in heaven. It's waiting for me. And God's keeping it there for me. He's safeguarding it. Most of the time we don't wake up with that thought on our mind, do we? We look more at like what we're going through and what we're experiencing. This inheritance is unlike any treasure or inheritance that you've received or experienced in this life. One of the things about pleasures in this life, pleasure, some of it comes through possessions, right? Or experiences, is they're, they're always in jeopardy. We're always about to lose them. We, we, we get something that we think, will, we, we think will finally make us happy and then we're worried because we might lose that thing that's going to make us happy. You know, several years ago, my friends gave me um, this Apple Watch. It was a really cool gift. I really like it. It's um, been really useful. But it wasn't long until I had a couple scratches in the face. And it's like, oh, man, it's a real bummer, right? Because it's kind of a new thing and you want it to stay nice and it doesn't really stay nice. Well, it's still functional, but the other day I was uh, working on something and I, I guess I must have hit it too hard because it cracked, this, the whole screen cracked. Now only the top quarter is functional. The rest doesn't even work as a touch screen. That's the way stuff is. You buy the latest computer and you're like, wow, this thing is so cool and so fast and it's got all these features. And a couple of years later, it's obsolete and it's not really that great. The, the car that you thought was going to be this really reliable car, you know, breaks down or you wreck it or somebody puts a scratch into it or whatever. You know, that's just the, the nature of stuff that we accumulate. In fact, it's, if you go to a, a third world country, oftentimes the burden of having stuff and the risk of losing it starts to outweigh the benefit of the intrinsic value of that thing. Have you ever traveled somewhere where like, there's, a, there's a lot of theft um, and just stuff is prone to having accidents or getting lost or, or being stolen, and you're like, I wish I wouldn't even have this thing with me. Like, you take a, a trip through a third world country, you're likely not going to take your nicest computer with you because good chance you'll become a target for thieves. 
And the, the jeopardy of losing our things sometimes gets to the place where it outweighs the benefit of having it. And he's saying, this is exactly what your inheritance in heaven is not. And it's not just stuff, but, but other experiences, good experiences that we have, fall into that same category of transiency. The breathtaking sunset on the lake is just moments away from disappearing. And the, the very fleeting nature of the moment creates like an ache in your heart. You know what I'm talking about, right? You look at this beauty and you just wish it could stay that way forever. And you know it's, it's just a few minutes and it's going to be gone. Melissa came in last night after uh, spending some time out in the field next to our house with the kids. They were running around out there and it was a um, sunset and... She came in and she was telling me about it. And I saw just the glow in her eyes of the beauty of the moments that she was treasuring. And I got that same kind of ache, just realizing, you know what? This, this season with our kids is really beautiful in a lot of ways. And we treasure these moments so much, but I know it's just going to be a short time. And then they're gone. Maybe... Peter was remembering some of the words of Jesus, some of the last words that he spoke to his disciples when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And Peter's saying, set your mind and your heart on that, on that inheritance that is kept in heaven. It's imperishable. It will not fade. It will not become tarnished. It's safe, guarded by God himself who has laid it up in store for you. Now, not only is he safeguarding the inheritance, he's safeguarding us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know about you, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my inheritance in heaven and how... Man, I hope it lasts, like I hope it holds up or doesn't um, start fading or losing its value. Because I don't have any question that it will hold its value, that God will safeguard it. But sometimes I do that when I look at myself. I see my own corruptibility, my own lack of faith. Like we sing sometimes, prone to wander Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God's not just keep keeping the inheritance safe in heaven, saying, come and get it if you can. He is keeping us. We are kept by the power of God. And how does he keep us? Through faith. The faith that you have is an act of God in your life. It's the power of God working in you. And if he's given you the faith to believe in Christ, he's also able to keep that faith alive in you. He guards our faith so that it will not fail. Some of us need to lay hold of this reality because we think our faith just goes up and down with whatever we're experiencing in the moment. And we're not realizing that it is the power of God that is keeping it in us, that is safeguarding faith. As we look to the inheritance that has been laid up in store for us. Remember the words that Jesus spoke to to Peter 
Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you so that he could sift you, so he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And you know what? It was soon after this that Peter failed in a big way. He denied Christ. He would rather deny his master who bought him than to risk experiencing suffering. But his faith did not utterly fail. His faith took him through that failure. And I don't know about you, but I can't imagine a much more massive failure than to just outright deny Jesus because you're afraid of suffering. But his faith took him through that failure to the other side, to bitter weeping and repentance and restoration and to a a humbled man who looked back to Jesus with resolve to follow him to the very end. And he did. His faith did not fail. He is guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what this entire book is about. Salvation. Salvation that we are experiencing, yes. And I think we often think of salvation in terms of what we are experiencing. But not only. Salvation that is going to be revealed. Do you realize that the salvation that you have received, the greater part of it you have not yet seen? It is laid up in store, ready to be revealed at the last time, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There was someone who was teaching here uh, a number of years ago who said he believes that we have experienced the greater part of salvation. That that the greatest change is now compared to what we will experience when when we get to heaven. And I was like... I don't think I agree with that. Maybe, maybe in a theological sense there's some kind of truth to that because spiritually we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But experientially, the greater part of what we are going to experience is in the future. And that's what Peter's saying. Set your hope on that. Not on your current experiences, but on what will be revealed at the return of Christ. We don't even know what salvation is yet in its entirety. To be fair, we have a more comprehensive revelation of our salvation than maybe the Old Testament prophets had. But the best revelation, the greater part of that revelation is yet to come. The salvation we experience, the communion with God, fellowship with Jesus that we taste here is just a small down payment of the glory that is to be revealed. We see now through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. And we'll look at at that just a little bit more later. In this, you rejoice. In what? I I think I used to read this wrong. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, the the testing of your faith. I I thought in this, you rejoice, is talking about how the, the testing of our faith is going to have a good result in our life. But I think he's talking about the salvation that we were just talking about. In this, you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Grieved by various trials. Didn't he just say we're rejoicing? 
we're rejoicing as we are grieved by various trials. It's really important that we understand the rejoicing that he's talking about here isn't just a rejoicing that will follow the trials. It is a rejoicing that takes us through trials. It carries us through the middle of them. The good news is the grief of the trials is just temporary, while the rejoicing will last for eternity. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, that's your trials, but to the things that are unseen, that's the reward, the salvation that is laid up in store. For the things that are seen are transient, just temporary, fleeting, but the things that are unseen last forever. They're eternal. You want to know something? I think one of the most profound expressions of grace and of God's power in his people is when you see someone walking through deep trials with that rejoicing, with that unshaken faith. Believers rejoicing through trials. It has literally been the undoing of a lot of efforts to squash out Christianity historically. The more fire that was poured on, the more intense the persecution became, the more that unshakable faith was seen that absurd joy that Christians had as they went to the stake to be burned alive for their faith. I saw, I saw some of this just a few weeks ago in, in Melissa's uncle. His wife took her own life. Extremely hard thing to walk through. I can't imagine what he's been going through. And yet, through... The unspeakable pain that I saw in his eyes, I saw underneath it an unshaken faith in God's sovereignty and goodness. And that moved me profoundly. And I've seen it in other people who have walked through deep loss and grief. And I know you all have too. Isn't that one of the most amazing testaments to the grace of God working in our lives when we can walk through unspeakable tragedies and loss and testing. And yet, we are rejoicing. We're rejoicing because we're looking at our salvation. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why does it say, if necessary? Why is it necessary? Because God uses those trials to purify and maintain our faith. We just read that he is keeping you through faith unto salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. How is he keeping you through faith? By testing your faith, by purifying it. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, than the testing of gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get this, without testing, your faith will not be found to result in glory, praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. The testing of your faith is working for you an exceeding weight of glory. And yes, the glory will belong to Christ ultimately, but he's going to share that glory with you. That's why he's working this in you 
Second Thessalonians says, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. That's why he's purifying your faith and testing it. So that you can experience his glory with him. Yes, so that he can glorify his name in you. But also so that he can glorify you in him. I don't know why so many of us are surprised by trials. But we are. Isn't it the truth? Something comes along like, man, we get so sideswiped by it. Like, I don't know why I'm experiencing this. Why is God allowing this in my life? And yeah, we might know hypothetically why God allows trials in our life, but we're always like, why, why that, God? I just put my back out earlier this week. Really dumb. Yeah, it's been probably four or five years since I had slipped this disc this way, and it's really painful. It's like, God, why'd you allow that? <laughs> it's, even in the little things, he is testing our faith. To purify it. To work in us an exceeding weight of glory. That's why Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what you are to expect. The trial is going to come. Because that's how God keeps you through faith. By testing your faith. By allowing it to be tested. We look at the life of Jesus and we're like, yeah, theologically it makes sense for, for him to suffer, right? The just for the unjust. We know the theology behind that. But then we look at our own suffering and we're like, why should I suffer? Do you know that one of the primary questions that's asked again and again of apologists is, why does God let innocent, why would a loving God let innocent people suffer? I saw, I think it was a tweet recently, only one innocent person ever suffered and it was voluntary. He left us an example, Peter wrote, that we should follow in his steps. Our job is to prepare, to have minds prepared for action. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Do you remember, we just, uh, in our class this morning, we saw, uh, we looked at the verse where um, Peter had just had a revelation of who Jesus was, and then Jesus said, hey, the Son of Man is about to go to Jerusalem and be uh, to suffer and, and die. And Peter's like, starts rebuking him. He's like, never, Lord. And Jesus turned to him and rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your things on the, on, on, on the way God thinks about this situation, but on the way man looks at it. And that's what we need to change. We need to, we need to have God's mindset to see what he is doing through suffering in us. How many of you have heard the name Rick Rescorla? Raise your hand if you recognize, even if you don't know what it's about, if you recognize that name at all. Isn't that incredible? What a shame. We don't recognize that name, but we recognize the name Osama bin Laden so well. Rick Rescorla may have been one of the greatest American heroes you've never heard of. He was a decorated Vietnam veteran of British birth. He 
was the head of security for Morgan Stanley's World Trade Center offices in New York City. They had a workforce of nearly 3,000 people, and they were the tower's largest tenant. With a workforce of 3,000 people, they occupied 22 floors of Tower 2. Although Rescorla is a hero now, he hasn't always been seen as one. To some people, he was more of an inconvenience, you could say a pain in the neck. And here's why. He was an expert disaster planner. Now imagine having an expert disaster planner in charge of your security. He worried that the World Trade Center represented a major terrorist target, so he put Morgan Stanley employees through frequent random evacuation drills. When Rescorla's evacuation drill orders came, everything stopped. Every last person in the company knew the evacuation routes, time limits, and contingency plans, and they would practice them. Although Morgan Stanley traded hundreds of millions of dollars a day through the World Trade Center offices, every employee had to participate in Rescorla's evacuation drills. He appointed team leaders and fire marshals for every floor. They underwent extra training. Their jobs were to make sure the different floors would follow his comprehensive 22-floor evacuation plan. I'm telling you, this sounds like the kind of person who would get under my skin. Some folks around Rescorla's drills found Rescorla's drills annoying and wanted to skip the interruptions and keep working. The first plane hit Tower 1 at 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001. The Morgan Stanley offices were in Tower 2. Office workers felt the explosion and saw the damage. They could see people jumping, breaking out windows and crawling out to escape the heats and flames. Some were jumping. Shortly after impact, the Port Authority came across the building's intercom system. The order was for everyone to stay put. Rescorla ignored the orders. He was already out taking action, right according to his plan. He ordered his security staff, floor leaders, and fire marshals to evacuate immediately. He picked up his walkie-talkie and bullhorn and commanded the operation floor by floor. The Morgan Stanley evacuation plan went into full effect, and the people responded the moment the order came down. They had been drilled in exactly what to do. Seventeen minutes later, at 9.03 a.m., the second plane hit Tower 2. The jolt knocked people off their feet. Desks and file cabinets overturned. Papers littered the floors. The power went out. Many sustained injuries in the stairwells and on the Morgan Stanley floors. The stress on everyone jumped from high to extreme. But the evacuation continued according to plan. Rescola knew everyone in the building was in serious trouble. His people were performing well But he needed to maintain their focus. He didn't want anyone freezing, so he picked up his bullhorn and began singing songs from his youth. They were the same songs he'd sung to his men back in Vietnam. They helped people keep fear at bay and focus on the task at hand. One bystander reported that he was singing the the rousing Welsh song, Men of Harlech. The songs worked just as well in the World Trade Center stairwells as they did during the war. In between songs, Rescorla paused to call his wife. Stop crying, he told her. I have to get these people out safely. If anything should happen to me, I want you to know I've never been happier. By around 945, the evacuation of Morgan Stanley's offices was nearly complete. 
But at the bottom, Rescorla turned around and started heading back up. A handful of people were unaccounted for, including members of his security staff. Then there were firemen, police, and people from every other office, building, office in the building. Everyone knew Rescorla wouldn't come out until every last person had been rescued. Rick Rescorla, American hero, was last seen in the 10th floor stairwell heading higher. Not long after that, at 9.59 a.m., Tower 2 collapsed. Thirteen Morgan Stanley employees died on 9-11. This includes Rescorla and four of his security team. But the remaining 2,687 employees plus 250 office visitors survived. That's what it looks like to have a mind prepared for action. That is how to not be surprised when the fiery trial overtakes you. Here's what faith does in you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's the outcome of your faith. If you hold to it, if you focus on it, the outcome is the salvation of your souls. I've been working for a number of years now in preparation for PA school. Four and a half years or so of undergrad education, countless hours of brushing up on the essentials, scouring the web for resources to reinforce knowledge of pharmacology and anatomy, physiology, biology, biochemistry. The reason I'm taking these pains to prepare is because I've been told repeatedly that it's extremely challenging, that nothing can fully prepare you for the barrage of information that will hit you during those years of PA education. Nearly all PA students agree that it's not unlike trying to drink from a fire hydrant. How do you prepare for that? There's one thing that I think is more important than all the other preparation. I think it's the most essential preparation, and it's this. Anticipate the outcome. Focus on the outcome. What is the goal at the end that you're working toward? Wanting the outcome, wanting it enough to sacrifice six or seven years of your life to education, wanting it enough to give up other things that are a valuable part of your life, fix your eyes on the outcome. And it's something that I have to keep reminding myself because it doesn't always feel like it's, like it's reachable or like it's right there. I have to remind myself, the outcome is what I'm working for. It's not just this time of struggle or the trials that I'm going through trying to get to the outcome. It's the outcome. It's the same way for us. What is the outcome of our faith? The salvation of our souls fixate on it that's what peter's saying here look at the salvation that you've been given not only the salvation that you are experiencing but the salvation that will be revealed at the return of christ and he's he's wanting you to know that it will be worth any amount of trials or struggles that god allots to your for a little while, if necessary, quota. Because he knows exactly what your faith needs. 
to result in praise and glory and honor at his appearing. And here's this little know what you've got speech concerning the salvation that we're talking about here. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He's talking about your salvation. Do you look at it like that? Do you look at your salvation and think, wow, this is something that the prophets in the Old Testament, many of them spent their entire lives looking at this, longing for it, waiting for it. There's a whole list in Hebrews 11 of people who, who gave their lives looking for this salvation, even though they knew that they themselves were not going to obtain it, but you coming after them. That's the glory that they saw in it. There's a verse in, in 1 Corinthians 2 that we often hear. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those that love him. And we often hear it kind of quoted as in, this is what God has prepared for those that love him that we're going to experience in the future. You know what else? It's talking about what we're experiencing now. Also, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That's the rest of it. It's talking about the fact that it was hidden before. The rulers of this world didn't understand it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. But the things that God has prepared for those who love him, he has now revealed to us through his Spirit. And I think we need a deeper revelation of that to carry us through trials. In saving us from sin... And we're about to wrap this up. In saving us from sin, God set forth the most marvelous display of His divine characteristics. Mercy. Would you know the mercy of God without salvation? Love. Grace. Undeserved favor. Even justice. God is so committed to justice that he didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for our sin. Things into which angels long to look, they wish that they could get a glimpse into what we are experiencing as the redeemed people. There's attributes, attributes of God that, that the Bible says are clearly seen to even unbelievers, to those who deny him. Romans 1 talks about that. The things that, that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that were made. But there are other attributes of God, his love, his mercy, his forbearance, his grace, his kindness, that can only be fully appreciated through salvation. That's how he's put them on display. And I want you to, to look beyond what we see right now through salvation to what we're going to see in eternity through salvation. That's what the book of Revelation is about. 
we fast forward to the end of the story, it's about this salvation. Revelation 7 says, uh, John looked and he saw this great multitude that no one could number. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know about you, but I don't think I understood this before. God's not being saved from anything, right? Salvation belongs to our God. He's talking about the salvation that he's given us. It's God's doing and God's character is put on full display through it. And in response to that, the angels that were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And you remember the scroll that John was shown? And no one was found worthy to open the scroll in heaven or on earth. And when he saw that there was no one who was found worthy, it says he began to weep loudly. And then one of the elders came to him and said, Don't weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I want you to see something here. He conquered how? By giving his life as a ransom for you and I. That is how he conquered. That is how he obtained this elevated status. So that he has a name that is above every name. By redeeming you and I. And we get to play a part in this. This grand story of the goodness of God. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a song that had not been sung before. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. There it is. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see this? The apex of God's glory on display comes through redemption through salvation. That's what Peter is talking about. And he's saying, set your eyes on that and it will carry you through any trial. In the rest of the letter, he gets really practical about how, what that looks like as it's lived out. But this is the foundation for it. You miss this, there's no way to prep for the trials that are going to come in your life. This is how we prepare. By setting our eyes on the salvation that is ready to be revealed, that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, verse 13, and being sober-minded, it means just thinking 
rightly. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A lot of our discouragement and trials comes from not doing that. Not setting our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed. It's a salvation that is both present and future. It's present. Conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways. You've been cleansed from sin. That is a present reality. With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and spot. And it is also future. Second Peter 3, he says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I know a lot of us are looking as things become destabilized around us and as darkness appears to become darker. We're looking for that new heaven and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Set your hope fully on that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that is in it. Thank you, Lord, that you remember our frame. You know that we are dust. But you have provided us with everything that we need. You keep us through faith, through your power. And I pray, Lord, that you would change our perspective so that we're not looking at earthly things. We're not looking at the temporary things which are fleeting, but at the things that are eternal. That we would be aware constantly that the trials that we're going through right now, the struggles that we encounter, are working for us a far more exceeding weight of eternal glory. We love you, God, even though we don't see you. Jesus, even though we haven't walked beside you here on earth, We haven't seen you with our physical eyes, yet we love you. And we long for the day when we'll be in your presence. And we'll see the fullness of the salvation that you have given to us. Help us to be ready for that. In Jesus' name, amen.